Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today we will be talking with Dr. Shannon Fogg, professor and chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Missouri University of Science and Technology. She'll be talking with us about her new book, Stealing Home, Looting, Restitution, and Reconstructing Jewish Lives in France, 1942 to 1947. Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me, Robin. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Um, I wonder if before we talk about the book, if you might tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, As Robin mentioned, I am a professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology. I was lucky enough to to come here uh, about 14 years ago, and it's really been a great environment to be able to balance teaching with with research and, and to really be able to focus on the things that are of interest to me. Um, I'm not from Missouri, so this was kind of a, a transplant. I'm originally from Texas. Uh, I went to Texas A&M as an undergraduate, where I thought I was going to be a biology major. And I was planning to go to medical school, uh, but I really wanted to study abroad. I wanted to go somewhere Um, I tried to convince my parents that I needed to go to Spain to take some Spanish classes. And they thought that was crazy since we lived in Texas. I could learn Spanish in Texas without having to go all the way to Spain. Um, And I was walking across campus one day uh, and someone was handing out these flyers for, um, it was called the Normandy Scholars Program. And there was a chance to study um, classes together on campus for a semester and then spend a month in France visiting the places that we had learned about. And it was all focused on France during the the Second World War. So I took history courses, political science courses, literature, film. We learned about everything um, focused on life during the Second World War. And it was so fascinating to me. It was not the history that I had learned in high school. It was not a list of the allies and the axis. It was 
it was so much more complicated and it was stuff that I had never heard. I didn't know about Vichy France. I didn't know about collaboration. I had never seen these, these films uh, before. So I thought, you know, all right, here's a great chance for me to go study abroad. Um, It'll be paid for. I'll finish a minor in history. It's going to be, I'll just finish. And I went and it completely changed the the course of what I was doing. I came back and I changed my major to history and, and just kind of went from there. It was, it was the time, this is the mid 1990s. So the memory of the war was kind of a big topic in, in the scholarship. Uh, The trials of wartime collaborators are happening around this time. So I really wanted to know more. I started trying to find somewhere. Where can I go? Where can I study this? Uh, I contacted Robert Paxton at Columbia, and he said he was about to retire. He'd be retired before I ever got close to getting my PhD. Uh, And someone happened to show me an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education about Sarah Farmer's work on the massacre at Orador sur Glen. Uh, that happened at the end of the war. And I, I contacted her. Uh, she was at the University of Iowa at the time, and I ended up going there. Uh, they had a great balance there as well between the opportunity to teach and learn those kinds of, of skills and interact with students and support for, for research. So I got my master's and my PhD at the, the University of Iowa, and after graduation, uh, I came here to, it was at the time University of Missouri Rolla. It's now Missouri S&T. And that's where I've been for the last 14 years. And with that said, how did you come to write Stealing Home? What brought you specifically to this topic? Kind of like uh, finding Vichy was an accident. Finding this this topic was an accident. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't really planning Uh, to write this book. This isn't what I had in mind. When I started, um, I had just finished my first book and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought I would maybe draw on some of the things that I had started researching in that book. And your first book was on daily life during the Vichy period. Is that right? Right. Daily life uh, in the, the rural Limousin and the interactions between the French people and a lot of the refugees who came into the area. And one of the groups that I had looked at was the treatment of children. There were children's homes in the area. And I thought, you know, there's still a lot more to say about children's experiences during the war. Mm. Um, I was teaching for a semester in London in 2009. So I thought, okay, if I'm in London, maybe I can do something comparative. And children who were evacuated from from Europe to England, maybe I can look and see what their experiences were, compare that to the evacuated children's experiences in France. So I was going to the archives in, in London. I was in the British Library one day. I was looking for anything that was connected to France in some way. Hmm. And I came across the published reports of the Mattioli Commission. And that was really the first time that I had come across these. So in 1997, the French prime minister 
who was Alain Juppé at the time, created a commission to study the question of the spoliation of Jews in France during the Second World War. Um, There had been a lot of discussion of this in the media. And so he put together this work work study group uh, to look into the extent of Jewish looting during the war and then what happened to those items. You know, what... Where did they go? What happened to them? Were people right. compensated? And um, the the commission worked for a few years, and they published their findings in 2000. And those are all available online. They're PDFs, but I actually saw the, the, the book version. Oh. And I started looking at these, and I had no idea. I didn't know that there was this commission. I didn't know that people had been looking at it. And there were different topics that they had focused on. They, there's there's one on economic Aryanization. There's one on items that were looted from people inside the concentration camps in France. There's one on the looting of artwork. But there's also a separate one on the looting of Jewish apartments um, during the war and what happened. Mm-hmm. And so... I started, I thought, well, this is really interesting. I don't know anything about this. And I'm really interested in ordinary people's experiences during the war. Uh, we often get, you know, the important people or the politicians, but right. I'm not one of them. You know, I want to know what life would be like for somebody more similar to me. Um, and everyone, most people have a, a home. And so what, what is this home like and what happens when, when the home is taken away from you? And so one report, um, that, that report on the apartments, one line in there really kind of stood out to me. And it said that, you know, even after all of this time, there was nothing that had been written about restitution. There were no studies, there were no PhD dissertations. There was nothing. There was some stuff on looting, especially like bank accounts and famous artwork and and those kinds of things. But there was nothing about the process of how people got their stolen items back. Um, And so I thought if you're going to look at looting, you also need to look at, at restitution. Um, So that was really the thing that kind of got me interested is these reports. And I wanted to know more and I started looking and there wasn't more. Um, And after that semester in London, I went to Paris for the summer to do research. And so I really started to look into the files, uh, see what was in there, Um, especially the the files at the National Archives in series AJ38, which was the wartime files of the, the CGQJ. It's the organization that was created during the war to deal with the Jewish question. So the Commissariat General Question Juif. Mm-hmm. Um, and that AJ38 also includes the files of the post-war restitution service. They're all grouped together. So it's seen as this continuation as well. Um, so I started looking through there. What's in there? What's What information is there in about apartments? What information is there about people's homes? What happened to all of these things? And included in the documents are all of the inventories that people sent to the French government after the war. And these are inventories that were created by Jewish victims of of looting. Their homes had been emptied during the war. And to get anything back, they had to send an inventory of their apartment's contents. 
So they literally had to sit and think and list every single item. And these things weren't, obviously they weren't around them anymore. So they're having to. Right. They're doing all of this by memory. Right. And so that's one of the things that's kind of interesting is how do people remember? Um, what order are they putting things in? So there are all of these these inventories. There's thousands of them. There's over 6,000 of them um, in there. So they're fascinating. And they tell us much more than just kind of listing the contents of a looted apartment. And so that's really where the project started. And it kind of uh, grew from there. So having these inventories and then trying to figure out what can you do with them? I mean, you can do so many things with them. You can look at material culture and see what people owned. You can do a kind of demographic study. What are the size of of apartments? Where are people living? Who's making these claims? Um, so it was kind of starting with that and then kind of building out what other sources do I need to look at to kind of to build up the story of, of what happens when the government comes in and strips everything out of your home. What do you do when you come back? What, what does home mean? Uh, how do you restart your life? What's the role of material things in that as well? So I really didn't start out specifically wanting to explore this topic. And the project really went where the the archives led. I wonder, just because you quickly mentioned restitution and you talk about the importance of this term early on in the book, um, I wonder if you want to explain for us the difference between restitution and um, the other word that we hear a lot when it comes to, you know, dealing with the aftermath of looting, which is reparations. Right. So immediately after the war, the French government is interested only in returning stolen items. So restitution at this point had purely, it's purely the connotation of returning an item that was stolen. There is no moral connotation, which is what we get with reparations. The idea that you're kind of providing compensation for something that was lost or uh, that you're righting a wrong in the past. You're making some kind of of repair. This is purely um, returning items that have been stolen. So the idea was after the war, there's there's all of these thousands of apartments. There's 38,000 apartments in, in Paris that were completely stripped of their belongings. The idea is then some of these items were found And can they return these items back to their rightful owners? Um, It's not about compensating all of the people who have lost their things. It's it's solely about returning items that were stolen. Um, And why why do you think it is or why is it that this topic, you know, hasn't been explored? Of course, the history of, you know, Second World War persecution has been very widely studied, but the story of rebuilding Jewish life after the war hasn't really been told. So um, why why is that? I think it's a really interesting question. I don't know that I have um, all of the answers to that, but I think that there's certain trends that we can kind of find. Um, there's certainly more being written about displacement and return now uh, in France, but also more widely in European history. But I think one of the contributing factors is that for a long time, there's been this idea of uh, post-war Jewish silence, that after the war, 
Jews didn't want to talk about their experiences. They wanted to look to the future, right? They wanted to rebuild their lives. There was no point in, in looking back, but the, the point was now to move forward. Um, there are other examples of people who say, you know, I got back. I wanted to talk about what happened to me, but nobody wanted to listen. People didn't want to know. Uh, or people, other people, non-Jews said, you know, we suffered during the war as well. We all suffered. So let's just all move forward. Um, but there's more and more research that comes out that, that demonstrates that, that Jews were talking about their experiences after the war. They were writing about it. They were engaging in politics. They were engaging with the, with the government. Um, but that narrative has large, largely been lost in the scholarship as, it, as we moved further away from the war. So there's a lot in the post-war period. And then I think that that myth of silence um, kind of became one of the dominant historiographical narratives. And so that's, I think, one reason that we don't have as much about that post-war period. Um, I think there's several other things we could consider. Uh, The process of rebuilding after the war was all-encompassing. Everything in France needed to be rebuilt. You need a new government to be put into place. The infrastructure needs to be rebuilt. Uh, the economy needs to, to shift again. Um, so you have everything that needs to be fixed and focused on. And we often look at those larger kind of issues, those larger overarching trends, right? Women get the right to vote. Uh, you have an economic boom. So those are, I think, the things that get that get attention. There's food shortages at the time. There's housing shortages. So I think these kind of individual stories of people rebuilding their lives, the daily struggles of, of individuals get lost in these kind of bigger structural shifts. Um, in some ways, it's kind of related, right? The, the sources, what kind of sources can we use to try and understand Uh, what it was like for people to rebuild their lives. If you come back from surviving uh, a a concentration camp or you've been in hiding or you've, you know, been traveling and you come back and you've lost everything, you don't have a job, uh, family members are gone, uh, you, your home has been completely emptied or somebody else is living in it. Your main concern is probably not to write down your experiences of what life is like as it's happening at that point. So they're not documenting the return. Uh, they're not, there's not right an easy source base to go to. And there are paper shortages. I mean, that's, there's people aren't writing these things down. Um, so I think people have really been interested in understanding and, and it's back to the historiography, like so, how something like the Holocaust could have happened. It was truly extraordinary. Um, but that return to normal is more ordinary. And I think it's not something then that we're, right? The idea is you're just going back to the way things were. So why do we need to look at, at that uh, when we, we still have to understand how this even happened to begin with? So I think there are a lot of, a lot of different reasons why we haven't looked at this process of kind of reintegrating um, 
you know, and after the war, there's also a, a huge emphasis on the positive aspects of France's history. Um, a lot of focus is put on the resistance. France is trying to find its own way forward with the developing Cold War and, and what kind of country they're going to be. Uh, we're returning to the ideas of, of a republic and republicanism. Everything is equal and we're not identifying people um, by racial or social or, or ethnic differences anymore. So, so all of those things, I think, combined um, mean the focus is on the bigger or things that people saw as maybe more important than kind of the daily readjustment to life after the war. And I guess the, I mean, the history of spoliation would definitely be a, I mean, a negative spot in the history um, of France. So how, how then did, how did the spoliation come about? I mean, how were Jews dispossessed during the Second World War? Um, what were some of their experiences and how did this process, you know, come to be both, I guess, from the top down, but also what were their experiences on the ground? Almost immediately, as soon as, as the Nazis uh, are in, in France and the armistice is signed, uh, the Nazis begin a systematic plunder of France. They're, they're looking for these countries that they're conquering as a source of um, economic support for Germany, for support for the war, to keep their own people well-fed and free from shortages because they had learned from the First World War right, that that people who are experiencing extreme hardship are people who might rebel um, and make things more difficult. So they, they come in, in as June as 1940, uh, as early as June 1940, they're focusing on, on taking things out of France. They're focused first on artwork, especially, um, you know, famous pieces of art, other cultural objects, sculptures, library collections, um, and things of like really high value. Right. 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 Um, and, and that certainly affected Jews, uh, and Jewish collections and Jewish art collectors. Uh, but as we kind of advance in the war, the looting of Jewish homes begins later. Um, and it's really starts in the spring officially starts in the spring of 1942 with something that was called the furniture operation. And okay. the, the looting of, of, of Jewish homes, it's a coordinated effort, and it is clearly associated with the implementation of the final solution in, in Europe. Um, Alfred Rosenberg, who is uh, in charge of the Eastern Territories, he sends a request to, to Hitler in December of 1941 asking for permission to strip uninhabited Jewish homes throughout Western Europe so that those items could be sent back to the Eastern territories where he said there is a severe lack of, of furniture. So it's part of the, the Nazi expansion right into places like Poland, where then they're removing Jews into ghettos and later into death camps. And then, mm -hmm. and then, putting Germans into these homes and into these areas, but they needed furnishings. Um, Hitler approved this transfer of goods from Western to Eastern Europe, and the program officially begins in France in January 1942. So the idea was, at this point, it was limited to 
abandoned, what they call abandoned apartments. So only uninhabited abandoned apartments uh, could be looted. And, but again, this is, this is linked to, you know, the, the implementation of, of the final solution. And you have to think about why are these apartments abandoned? Um, So in, in many cases, it's people who had fled um, Paris, right, for their own safety, who had either fled to southern France or to other countries because of the laws that were being implemented, because they they saw the danger, because they were experiencing persecution. So their homes are now considered abandoned. Um, and it's also abandoned homes, empty homes, are homes that have that are no longer occupied because their their residents had been arrested and incarcerated and interned and then later deported. Um, so these, uh, these abandoned apartments, the, between 1942 and 1944, at least 38,000 of them in Paris were sealed. So that's the first step in the process. If the, if the apartment is identified as being abandoned, uh, it could be sealed under Nazi orders and, and seals were placed on the door with a little notice that said, do not enter. Um, and then um, they remain sealed until um, uh, usually a French moving company came to remove the items, the furnishings, everything inside the apartments were removed. Uh, they would come in. They would they would take the the lights off the ceilings, mirrors off the walls, the the linoleum off the floor. They pulled out kitchen sinks and took those as well. So absolutely everything was stripped out of these apartments. Uh, they were then taken to various depots inside Paris. There's uh, there were three labor camps, Nazi labor camps inside Paris that were, um, that had Jews who were forced labor working inside these camps. The furniture and the items inside were then sorted. So all of the cups and dishes and saucers, everything went together. The clocks, the children's toys, everything was sorted by category. Uh, They were then packaged and most of them were then shipped to Germany. Um, and it was the, the Mattioli Commission did kind of do the calculations and looked at all of the things. And more than 674 train loads, full trains of goods were sent to Germany in this two-year period. So there's this huge amount of, of furniture and bedding and kitchen items, everything is being shipped. And in some cases, the items are being put together as whole apartments. So you might, they might bundle uh, a two bedroom working class apartment, and then it's ready to go and it can be shipped to Germany. And then a bombing victim in Germany, a victim of of an air raid could, the German government could then say, here is all of the stuff that you need for a two bedroom working class apartment. So it was this very Very calculated. (laughs) Yes. And, um, and, and then you start to get people kind of wanting there to be more arrests. So there's more furniture available that can be then shipped um, abroad. But, you know, all of this really 
it's not just about the items that are in there, right? It's not just about taking something materially. This is violating um, people's private space, right? The assumed safety that your home is a safe haven, that this is a, you know, your, the, the center of your family. So you're violating people's sense of security, their sense of belonging. And it also really underscores the fact that the Nazis believed that Jews would not need the contents of their homes anymore, right? That, right. that wow. Jews are going to disappear and that you don't need. And, and it was, it was, it was meant to be a complete erasure of all traces of Jewish memory and life. They take photographs, they take letters, um, they throw them in the gutter, right? There is, it's just trying to erase everything associated with Jewish life um, in, in the capital. And it's not just removing Jewish influence from the economy, right? This goes beyond that. It's, it's the complete erasure of, of the daily existence of, of families. And it seems, I mean, it seems like a very German run operation. The goal was to send furniture to Germany, but what was the extent of like French collaboration? You mentioned that it was French moving companies who would transport the goods, but um, yeah, what what sort of collaboration was there um, or French participation? It's interesting. Um, so French at first, right, when, when the mass arrests began in 1942, it's then easier for the German authorities or the, or the French police to identify which apartments are abandoned, right? If right. they have gone and they've arrested someone from that apartment, they know where those apartments are. Um, but before that, when, when the process started earlier in the spring of 1942, in January 1942, um, it would be the neighbors who would say that apartment is empty, right? Can can I move in there? Can you get the furniture out of there? Uh, landlords were often complicit in it because they're losing the rental income if people have abandoned it. Right. So they want the government to do something about it, to empty that apartment so that they can get somebody else in there and they can get their income back uh, as well. Um, there are people who are asking you know, we've noticed there's a lot of empty apartments. Can I have something bigger and nicer for my for my wife and I so we can start a family? Because currently we live in a very small place and we know there's two nice apartments in this building. So there's there's that kind of of complicity or opportunistic right. um participation in what's going on. Um, it's very visible. You can't hide a moving truck um, right yeah. out in the middle of the street. People see this happening and they see it. Um, and at first, before some of those, those train loads of goods were being sent to Germany, um, Jewish furniture was being given to French air bombing victims, especially in Bologna Bilancourt. Mm. Um, where the Renault factory was. And there was also a, a French aid organization. Uh, they would come with their truck and load up the things and then deliver it to the victims of, of this wartime thing. And then this was seen very positively that, um, you know, oh, thank you. Thanks to the Germans, right. We're, we're supplying these poor war victims with, with furniture, and then they become the French become um, 
much more skeptical as these things are now being loaded onto trains and being shipped out. Uh, and, and the French government does try to kind of keep control of this. You know, they say this is part of our French patrimony. This is right. French stuff. We want to keep it here. I mean, that makes sense um, just economically that they would Economically want to as well, yeah. right? Uh, and they even tried to argue, you know, well, if you're going to take it, then at least calculate the cost of it and deduct that from what we owe you for our occupation costs. Um, that didn't happen either. But there is this kind of, it's not, so there are some protests to the fact that this is happening, but it's not protests because you're taking Jewish goods or what the end result is. It's more protests because because the French are losing control over it and they're losing the economic advantage of it as well. Um, and then, so, I mean, of course, after this terrible and traumatic experience of deportation or of, um, you know, escaping to either Southern France or, or a different country, a number of Jews did return. So um, how did they at first go about attempting to reclaim their, you know, their previous homes, their, um, uh, now lost property uh, were they you know were they successful in doing so what were what were their experiences in doing that so um when you look at the documents there was a lot of things immediately after the war that told people don't come back to paris uh they said you know Yet they said, right now, there's no reason for you to come back. Your your home is occupied by somebody else. Uh, so there's not going to be a place for you to stay. Your job is gone. Uh, there's no workshops. You know, So you're kind of better off where you are. Uh, but many people came back. Some people came back and found their homes exactly the way they were when they left them. Others came back and found their home completely empty. Um, but no one else living in it. And still others came back and found that uh, their apartment was empty and that somebody else was living in it. So you have various kinds of, of situations that people return to. Some people knew in advance. Sometimes a neighbor or their concierge had let them know during the war, hey, the Germans came and took all your stuff. If they knew where where they had gone, Um but one of the first things that we see the government really kind of stepping in to do is issuing a, an ordinance related to housing in November of 1944. And this ordinance really addresses the procedures for people to reclaim their homes. Um, it's set out in such a way that if your apartment that you rented had been occupied by someone else during the war, you could request to return, but there were certain conditions. Um, and it was very vague. It was, um, it was very much couched in a language of republicanism, of equality, that we all have the right to kind of go back to where we were. But they also acknowledged that due to extreme housing shortages and the destruction of the war, that this wasn't going to happen for everyone. So they try and outline what would allow people to return. So you could request to return if you had been obligated to leave without consent and under the kind of... Okay, so not if you escape to the South of your, not, you know, not of your own free will, but out of pressure. Well, but it could also be the material or moral duress that was resulting directly or indirectly from 
the the fact of the occupation. So it's fairly broad, but you had to have left um, after the armistice. So not if you had left freely, like in, in May during the exode, as the Germans are coming in, then this is a questionable thing, right? Because you fled on your own. So there, it, it's, it is very complicated. It's very vague. And there were also a lot of exceptions um, into the ordinance as well. So if you had left, right, and you meet these other conditions, but if the current tenant was a bombing victim, or the current tenant was an evacuee, someone who had been evacuated maybe from Alsace and Lorraine or the other border regions. Um, if, if you were a refugee, um, if you were the spouse or, or a, a direct relative of a mobilized soldier or a prisoner of war or a political or labor deportee, you would be exempt from being expelled from that apartment. So there's this process put in place but it's almost impossible to actually use uh, because so many people were exempt. Um, so really the only people you could kick out is maybe if it was your neighbor who just wanted to expand the size of their apartment, right? But if somebody else who had been a victim of the war in some way had moved into that apartment, they were exempt from being expelled. So it's this idea that no one is going to be singled out for, for help. There's no special... Uh, advantages given to Jews whose homes had been looted and then reoccupied. Um, everybody is is kind of in the same situation, and so people find it very difficult. I mean, it was it was very difficult to get the, this housing back. Uh, you could take the current inhabitants to court to try and reclaim your your apartment, and oftentimes. People might win the court case, but then it was much more difficult to actually get someone to follow the law, right, to actually move out. Um, And throughout the spring of 1945, so if this ordinance passed in November and people are trying to apply it, throughout the spring of 1945, there are protests throughout Paris uh, when Jews are trying to reclaim their homes. Organizations would come together. Uh, There's an example of somebody, um, the concierge had moved into the apartment of a, of a Jewish inhabitant. Uh, the, the, the Jewish survivor comes back. They're, they're given the right to return to their home. Uh, they're starting to move all of the concierge's things out of the apartment and into a moving van and, and a large mob comes and they take the furniture and they move it back in. So you have these kinds of protests. You have physical violence, against uh, Jews, crowds would come. Um, they would beat up the the Jewish survivor who is coming back. There was one woman who was slapped in the face um, when when she tried to, to go back into her apartment. So it's it's very difficult. There we also see a lot of um, expressions of anti-Semitism. Um, that continue after the war and why would you give an apartment back? You know, the, they would, the reasoning was it's inhabited now by a good Frenchman. Why would you give it back to a foreign Jew? So you see anti-Semitism, you see xenophobia, uh, you see this kind of hierarchy of, of suffering. Um, we suffered, we're victims. Why, why can they get their, their 
house back and why are you going to kick somebody else out? So, and it, you know, it's a very small number uh, of Jews, right? 38,000 apartments, but the number of Jewish deportees, survivors, uh, who come back are much smaller than the the five million people whose houses had been bombed, or the the million POWs who return. So there are all of these different groups that are competing for access uh, to to these houses, to these homes. Um, and with this new Republican government, there's a commitment to equality and not distinguishing uh, between the the different groups. So you have this real struggle after the war. Yeah. I think that, I feel like we usually think of return after the war as something that was, you know, joyous and maybe even sort of marked the end of this like terrible anti-Semitic blight that had happened over the last you know five or six years. But it seems like by looking at the experiences of homes and of trying to return home it's clear that there are some enduring and some new tensions between French Jewish and French non-Jewish society. Absolutely. And in some of the, um, I used some oral histories and some memoirs as well. Uh, and a lot of people, almost everything that I read or listened to, they, they mentioned that first return home. And in a lot of cases, they said, it was almost worse coming back after the war than what they had endured during the war. Um, their treatment after the war was, was, you know, people said, Oh, you didn't all die or, Oh, you came back or returning to an empty home was very emotional. You know, children who had been hidden, they come back and all traces of their family, everything that connected you to your life before is gone. Um, some people, wanted to stay in those apartments. You know, they said it was, I was hoping that my parents were going to come back and then they they would have a home to return to, even though I knew that this was never going to happen. It was like this psychological need to be um, there in case somebody came back. So in some ways, this return was much harder. Um, the waiting, the the loss of, you know, people said the loss of their their memories, right? Their their memorabilia, the photographs, the your the the blanket that was made for you by your grandmother, right? Your favorite doll. Those were the things that were kind of more meaningful than the loss of, you know, uh, a, a couch or, or a bureau or something. Um, so there was this what does home mean and what makes a home? And and so those are all questions that people were dealing with as well. Right. In some ways, I mean, the writing down of, you know, the, the list that you were talking about earlier of all of the items that were in your apartment before the war is really like a memory act or ritual in a way. It is. And especially, you know, one thing that, that happens is that a restitution service will be finally created in January 1945, dedicated solely to returning these recovered items. And so you had a, the first step in, in getting a chance to see what items were there was to have sent in these inventories. But the restitution service dealt only with domestic use identifiable furniture. So the only thing that they're interested in are in unique pieces, something that you can look at and say that is definitely mine. So anything that was kind of modern mass manufactured, they weren't going to return because there's no way to say that that 
what now, right? For us, that Ikea bed is my Ikea bed. Um, it had to have been, you know, some, like some Louis XIV furniture or something. They weren't returning any of your kitchen utensils. I mean, if you knew what your refrigerator serial number was, maybe you could get that's something identifiable. But so the fact that all of these people are sending in these extensive inventories that include things like how many bottles of wine they had and how many spoons and how many brooms they had, right? They're putting every everything that was in their apartment. They're remembering everything that was in there, even though the only thing that you're allowed to actually go visit to try and find is domestic use, identifiable furniture, and it's only the things that were recovered in France. And the majority, more than 80% of, of the things that were looted were sent to Germany. They're not even dealing with trying to get things from somewhere else. It's solely the things that didn't make it out of France, right? That that were on a train and or in a warehouse waiting and the train got stopped before the before it was able to to cross over into Germany. So the fact that people are really participating in this, um, you know, they want to remember, but they're also engaging with the government. They're, they're right, that this is a way to have a voice to um maybe recognize the legitimacy of this new kind of government, this expectation that they're going to do something to help you. So these inventories are more than just, you know, a way to get looted items back. Right. And I, let's stick with this restitution service for a minute. So, um, you know, what exactly uh, is its, I mean, you've, you've talked about its goal, but what does it really end up doing for people? But also what does it tell us about this sort of, intersection between public and private lives, the role that the French government is playing in intimate and, you know, private Jewish lives. So the restitution service, it really, so it's created in January, 1945. It's under the French ministry of finance. Um, Kind of before that uh, people were sending their, their claims to kind of the, the property department, of, of the French government. So this is to focus solely on um, the, the, the restitution of these looted goods. And their job was really to, to kind of um, make sure that all of the legislation that's being passed is enforced in terms of, of the looting and spoliation process so that you reverse all of those things. Um, they could make suggestions for new or additional measures. Um, and then their job is really to keep the finance minister informed of how restitution is progressing. Um, and one of the things that I find really most interesting about this is there's this huge bureaucracy and you have thousands of people sending in these letters. Um, basically, they had found about 2,400 pieces of furniture. Right. That's all, of the 38,000, right. It's not a lot out of the 38,000 apartments and think of all of the things that go into furnishing an apartment. There's 2,400 pieces of furniture that had been found. Um, and in the end, less than 2000 of them were returned. So it's not really so much about the actual physical restitution of items. It's more about these other these bigger issues too. It's about recognizing right, that Jews are now part of the nation again and that um, 
participating in the political process, of having your voice heard, of recognizing that um, that they were singled out and targeted and that their items were stolen, that this is part of a, of a larger genocidal process. Um, and it, I, this is all related, that spoliation and the restitution is all showing us the ways that these private areas become very public and become very political. Um, and I th- think that uh, the despoilment process is just an extension of other ways that the Nazis and the Vichy government are trying to regulate people's daily lives, right? Through rationing. What you eat is now the government's business. Who you marry and whether you can get a divorce is now part of the government's business. Um, your identification, right? Identification cards are stamped, um, curfews that are imposed. All of these things are meant to destabilize people's lives and they intrude into your private life and make it part of the public sphere. And the same thing for restitution, right? The government is taking a role in rebuilding the physical space of your home and who has access to which apartments and what things can you put in there and who has priority for those things. So I think all of these, right, that public policies are really going into to private spaces and what do you want happening in these private spaces, right? You want the reconstitution of families and you want children to be born into these families. And, and that's a sign of returning to normal. So it's also thinking about demographics and, and what France is going to look like uh, in the future. So all of these things kind of come into play just by looking at an apartment or a home, right? And and what happens in there. One uh, part of the book that I found particularly fascinating is your discussion of how the home has, you know, traditionally been regarded as a, a feminine space or a, a woman's domain. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how gender played into the history of um, spoliation, but also um, restitution and the reconstruction of Jewish homes and lives in France. Sure. And that was one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting. Um, so that November ordinance and, and the people who are allowed to re-enter the home, it, it assumes a patriarchal male-dominated family. Um, and so the renter, usually the man, right, has the ability to reclaim his home. But what happens then if the man has been deported? Because more men statistically were deported from France than women. Um, so that's one aspect. All of those people who are excluded from from being expelled, they're, they're male categories, right? Prisoners of war and their wives or uh, labor deportees, usually male. Right? So there are all of these things Um, were kind of male-centric, but women are seen as the keepers of the home. Um, And in these restitution letters, it's very interesting um, because sometimes you'll see men will write the letter and then another letter will come in and say, sorry, uh, my wife was still in the countryside. And so I tried to make a list of the things in our house, but I didn't remember everything. And so my wife has added to the list. So 
but there's the idea that the man is the one who should interact with the government. Uh, there were some exceptions, of course, right? Single women, widowed women, uh, women whose husbands had been deported. They're writing their letters, but they usually identify their connection to a man in some way, right? My, my husband was deported. Um, my son is a prisoner of war or my son sought, fought for France. So there's, there's this idea that there's some connection, um, but you see women taking a very active role in the restitution process in writing these letters in asking for permission to try and find their items as well. So it's, and it's also an interesting time period, right? Women get the right to vote in France in 1945. So what kind of political engagement are they, are they engaging in? And some of it is just interacting with the restitution service, making demands. Um, sometimes as a woman, right, I want to have a, uh, a comfortable home for my family when they return. Um, and others just as, as getting their rights back. Right, and being part of it as well. So you do see um, kind of the still idea that, that men are the head of the household, but you see women participating in this process a lot more. And there's also this idea of returning to normal meant that people had a home, they had a family. So we see people rebuilding families, um, kind of extended families. So finding relatives that can all live together and su help support each other or friends, putting friends together in kind of new family units um, and also encouraging women to work um, to support their families, especially if the male head of household did not return. Um, and that was seen as, as now normal. Work was normal, family was normal and being in um, a safe, clean home was part of that as well. And how did Jewish organizations assist in the, the rebuilding process? I mean, how, how were associations, whether French communal associations or international Jewish associations, significant in this history? So people turn to them directly, right? So you have the government that's doing things. So some Jews kind of turn externally. And if things aren't going fast enough in that way, people turn to internal Jewish organizations to ask for help. They saw them as um, organizations that could lobby the government to make sure that laws were being passed, that things were happening more quickly. Um, they're also providing a lot of aid. Um, those people, when they did return, if they didn't have a place to live, they might provide some temporary housing. They might provide a little financial assistance. They might provide... Um, alone so that somebody could buy a sewing machine and start sewing and selling things to, to support themselves again. So there's different ways that, um, that the Jewish organizations are there. So there's some financial support, there's some kind of job training support, there's interacting with the government. They also talked about, um, they did some petitions, uh, especially when there's, uh, difficulty in getting people back into their houses. Uh, they talked about propaganda campaigns. They felt that if people truly understood what had happened to the Jews during the war, they would be more supportive and there wouldn't be some of the issues and conflicts after the war. Uh, they start gathering information and documenting all of these things because they felt that that was important to have a record of this as well. Um, 
foreign aid organizations, especially the American Joint Distribution Committee is providing financial support. Uh, there's also the creation of a new uh, organization called the COJASOR, uh, which was created to coordinate aid activity in Paris so that people were had kind of one place to go rather than trying to go to five different agencies looking for, you know, additional food or a place to live or a job. So it was meant to kind of coordinate everything and help get people up and back to this idea of, of normal, whatever normal was after such a horrific and incomprehensible experience that they had, had just been through. So you really have the organizations kind of, you have an inward and external, um, kind of role that they're playing. They're, they're working with the government, but they're also working with the Jewish community to try and rebuild um, and deal with, with, with the issues that are surrounding the material issues, but also kind of the, the continuing anti-Semitism and, and xenophobia that people were facing as well. Shannon, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time and this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, but before I let you go, I, I'm wondering if I can ask you what you're working on next. Sure. So I kind of have two things that I'm doing right now. One of them is I've, I'm always busy. <laughs> I'm going back to these inventories because there's so much in them. Uh, and when I use them this time, I kind of, I, there's over 6,000 of them I sampled and I looked for the ones that had the most kind of additional information, but now I'm going through them and, um, trying to map all of the addresses to see if we can get kind of a, a geography, an urban geography of restitution. Who's making these claims? Where are they making these claims? Does it fit the patterns that we expect? Are they coming from wealthy Jews? Are they coming from working class areas? Interesting. So that's one of the things that I'm working on. And there's a, a team of researchers in, in France that's also been working on this kind of urban geography of, of both uh, persecution and and I'm kind of looking at the restitution aspect. Um, and then the other thing I'm working on is a kind of longer, broader project, and it's on the role of the American Friends Service Committee and their aid in France during the war uh, as a Quaker organization, an American organization that was allowed to work uh, in France as humanitarian aid uh, and why they're allowed to do that, what kind of networks they had, uh, and how they they did they provided aid inside the concentration camps and they actually contributed to, to, to the rescue of Jews in France as well and we don't really have um, a comprehensive history of what what they did during the war so that's the other kind of longer term project yeah that's not something I, I have any knowledge of it sounds fascinating and there's tons of and it's one of those things that you get in a rabbit hole they were they there's tons of archival material. They sent all of, they sent letters back to Philadelphia. Everything that they did in France had to be approved. So there's all of these written records, which uh, I'm kind of buried in documents. So this is really much longer term. Right. Well, those sounds like some fascinating projects. I hope to have you back on the show when you've finished that project, not to, not to put any pressure on. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. It was great to, to share a little bit about this project with you. That was Shannon Fogg talking about her new book, Stealing Home, Looting, Restitution, and Reconstructing Jewish Lives in France, 1942 to 1947, which is out from Oxford University Press.
This has been New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks for listening. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.